you'd open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, we'll be reading starting in, in verse 18 and reading to verse 25 as we begin to take a look at the, uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, the scripture says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to hear your word, and then to hear the explanation and application of it. And I pray that, that we would open our hearts to receive your word. I pray that we would hear, and that we would be discerning, Father, and that, and that where this story has impact in our lives, I pray that we would not say, that's nice, and move on, but that we would hear the very words of God speaking to us and commanding us to obey and that we would say, yes, Lord, and that we would do as you say. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, to, to lift ourselves up from our cultural context and to, and to put ourselves in the sandals, uh, to see with the eyes of the people who would have heard this when it was first read. And may we, seeing through their eyes, may we hear with their ears, and may we be changed as their heart was hopefully changed. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, occasionally, you can come across a Bible story that, uh, that changes your perspective, um, that, that maybe you've heard numerous times, and, uh, and when you hear it, uh, and you peel back some of the, the layers of, of time and history and, and religious practice and cultural change, uh, the story can, can sound a, a, a different way. Now, don't worry, this is still going to end with the birth of Jesus. Um, that detail will not change. Um, I had an opportunity to preach down at the, uh, the school that my kids go to, Hollygrove, and uh, so I preached in chapel. You can find that message on our website. But um, I was talking about the story of Zacchaeus and explaining to them that Zacchaeus, um, he wasn't just a short little guy in need of a friend, right? That wasn't, that wasn't the case, that he was actually a despised tax collector who had uh, swindled and cheated people out of lots of their money, and that and that his that the story was actually one of facing the ugly truth uh, in ourselves. 
Um, and so this is a story I think that, that is similar if we drop into it and look at it the way Matthew is presenting it to us. And this is a story of the reaction of Joseph to the pregnancy of Mary and his struggle. So I want to I look at it from his eyes and, and talk about his experience, you might say, but aren't we going to talk about the virgin conception? Yes, but not today. And aren't we going to talk about what it means that the prophet was, uh, the words of the prophet were fulfilled about the virgin conceiving and, and bearing a son? Yes, but not today. Today we're going to talk about Joseph. So uh, what we're going to do is have an examination of Joseph's reaction to Mary's condition, and that will show us, hopefully, how to respond to offense and disappointment, and also show us why God chose this man to be the adoptive father of Jesus. Remember, we looked last week at the opening passage of the Gospel of Matthew, in which Matthew presents a case that Jesus is the son of David, and he gives genealogical proof. He's going he's to be uh, offering us multiple pieces of evidence now that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so we're going to see uh, piece number one today in this passage. Uh, we uh, come onto the story in verse 18, and we see Joseph's crisis, okay? The, the introduction sentence is, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. What we see is that his mother had been betrothed to Joseph. There was a formal cultural uh, engagement process that's different from ours. You may notice in this passage, words are used like betrothed, divorce, husband, and then took her as a wife, I believe, in that order. Here's how betrothal worked. Uh, the marriage was arranged um, by, by family, and there were some uh, bride price and some dowry exchanged, and, uh, and you were considered during that one year of preparation before you came together as husband and wife to be married. And at the end of that year, uh, if everything had worked out appropriately, the husband would go on the day of the wedding and he would receive his bride. He would go and he would take her. He would, he would begin the marriage procession and they would go to the bride's house and then he would receive or take his bride back to his own house and they would be wed and they would dwell with one another. You're considered to be married during that year, which is why in the passage it said, it, it, it makes sense that though they are not yet fully married uh, in, the, in the sense of the culture, they are legally married and Joseph would be able to divorce her. But during this year of preparation and planning and, and focusing on, on getting his, his business all set up in his house in order, during this year, it's discovered that she is with child. Verse 16 hinted at it, but verse 18 tells us clearly, she was found to be with child. So we see Joseph's crisis in verse 18. But we see next in verses, uh, verse 19, Joseph's dilemma and his resolve. Joseph's dilemma and his resolve. It says, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her 
quietly. We see first that Joseph was a just man. This means that he was righteous like Job. Uh, it means that, that he lived a life which was uh, observant of the law and that when people thought of him, they did not think that guy's a sinner or that guy has problems. They thought that's the kind of guy I would like my daughter to marry. That's the kind of guy I want my son to be like. He loves the Lord and he loves his law. Joseph had a zeal for the law of God. He loved the Lord. And his betrothed had been unfaithful to their vow. Now, Joseph also has his sense of justice. She has broken the vow. He is not supposed to marry her according to the law. Instead, she is supposed to be punished. His 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 sense of justice is also tempered by his sense of mercy. It says that he's a just man, and at the same time, he is unwilling to put her to shame. He wants to show some degree of mercy to her. This is, this is not saying that he feels bad for her. No, he believes that she has sinned. But he wants to avoid the extreme measure of the law. Deuteronomy 22, 23 says, If there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Now this was rarely practiced in the first century, but denunciation was practiced. He could go and say, you know, she was unfaithful to me and denounce her and, and he would bring a crowd with him, uh, kind of an anti-wedding. They would go to her house and he would divorce her publicly and she'd be shamed. Joseph also wants to avoid the shame of being married and then suddenly, just a few months after being married, them having a child. You know, we might think that, that they were primitive people, but they know how conception occurs, right? They know that it takes a certain amount of time until the baby comes. She was found to be with child, and so she's showing, and Joseph's like, that's not my child. I was not immoral. I did not take what does not yet belong to me. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Joseph has a zeal for the law of the Lord, and so he condemns the action but he wants to show mercy. And so we see the expedient solution that he found to avoid it. It says in the beginning of verse, or in the middle of verse 19, that he resolved to divorce her quietly. He lands on a, a passage in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, that, that, that speaks about uh, the fact that, that if, you, if you leave a wife and go and marry and she marries another, then you cannot marry her again. But there's a principle contained in there that I think Joseph, maybe he went to a rabbi and he said, I have a friend who has this problem, right? You know, like, it's not me. It's not me. You know, just tell me, tell me what you would do in this, in this case. And so Deuteronomy 24.1, you can hear the principle that Joseph lands on. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Remember, they are betrothed. That, that means that they're considered married even if they, they have not yet begun dwelling with one another. If he finds some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and so he thinks here, a private divorce, 
with just one or two witnesses. He was unwilling to put her to shame, though he was just, and so he resolved to divorce her quietly. He would go to her and he would say, I cannot marry you. I cannot be the father of this child. I will not be complicit in your sin. You know, I do not want to open myself up to the judgment of the Lord. And so I divorce you. And he gives her the document in the presence of two or three witnesses. And it is a fact. That is what he had resolved to do. Because he was a just man. But we see Joseph's deliverance from his dilemma in verses 20 and 21. It says, notice that his resolution was interrupted, but it it says that while he was considering, while, while he was considering, notice that Joseph doesn't just come to this conclusion, this is what I'm going to do. He ponders, he thinks, he considers, and he takes the time to think through his actions. Uh, This is where uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, I love this guy, I'm so glad uh, to to have him back on my shelf again in the the study of Matthew. Uh, Matthew Henry points out that, that this story really does have a lot to do with Joseph's character. And he says this, how good it is to think upon things and not react immediately. Think about the culture that we live in nowadays. We live in denunciation and opinion culture, don't we? Something happens in the news and we run to our desktops or laptops or we pick up our phones and we post our opinion. And we're quick to post our denunciation of someone else's opinion or our denunciation of someone else's denunciation, you know? And we, we think we've, I mean, because the, 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 the political parade is going on and on and on for an election that's not even going to take place till next year, we think we've got to have opinions and have everything figured out. But the very first debate, we live in a day and age of immediate reaction and temp- technology tempts us to speed everything up and to react. And when we react in anger, most often we react and we tend towards judgment when we react swiftly. But Matthew Henry takes note of how Joseph solved his dilemma and says that the more thought, the more the likelihood that there will be mercy and moderation. Isn't that a good thought? Joseph had walked himself back from being outraged and angry and brought himself to a place where where he was going to be gentle and kind. I believe it's often the will of God that we suffer for a while while we wait for him either to act or to speak so that something better can come to pass. Joseph was a man of God's word. Perhaps he ran across Proverbs 21.10 and pondered that. The soul of the wicked desires evil. evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Meditating on that verse, he might have considered and thought about it this way. The soul of the blessed or of the upright desires good. His neighbor finds mercy in his eyes. And so he desires to be gentle towards Mary, like David, his great-great-grandfather, was toward 
Absalom. When Absalom had rebelled against David and had, had deposed David from his throne, David and his men fled for their lives. But when David came back and took the city over again and Absalom's troops were fleeing, David sent out his army to pursue Absalom's army. But he warned his commander. He said, have mercy on the young man, Absalom, the man who had tried to kill him. Show mercy. We see that while he is considering that he is interrupted by an angel of the Lord in a dream, Joseph's going to have three dreams. Um, The Lord speaks to him in dreams. The book of Hebrews says that in the past, the Lord spoke to his people in various and diverse ways. And we believe dreams are one of them. But we believe that Jesus has, or that God has spoken most clearly in his son. And so the Lord perhaps will not speak to us, or I shouldn't use the word perhaps, the Lord will not speak to us clearly in dreams. Who knows what dreams mean? There are some pretty bizarre things that happen in dreams. But intervention from God comes to Joseph in a dream when he's exhausted all of his options and thrown himself on God's mercy. He is resolved, and perhaps he's saying, Lord, make my path straight. Guidance today would come in clear words from Jesus, from Scripture, from your conscience informed by Scripture, from observing what God is doing around you in providence, and from the counsel of godly friends. The guidance of God does not come when we think about how we ought to react and then we say, my initial reaction is just, and we justify ourselves, and we only think about praying and searching scripture and observing providence and going and getting the counsel of godly friends. Joseph has exhausted his options here. He has considered, and now the Lord speaks to him. An angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream. This is the part of the story that makes me, makes me, it's like at this point the camera would start to pan out, you know, you'd have that weird, like, this is a moment of great significance kind of reaction to the story. Because here's, here's where, where things move from just like um, lifetime movie problems, right? You know, I was engaged to this girl, but she got pregnant from some other guy, and so I decided to break it off. You know, now it moves into like epic movie story, right? Like, you know, something big is going on here. Your dad was a Jedi kind of thing, you know? Like, and you, you are destined to blow up the Death Star, so please don't whine throughout the rest of the movie, which is exactly what Luke does. Something big is going to happen here. Joseph is is spoken to by the Lord in this dream, and he is directed and commanded by God. Look at, look at what's said here. First, he's addressed by his royal identity. Joseph, son of David, for his entire life, however old he is, he has been working as a carpenter, as a, as a tradesman. He's been building things, doors, buildings, roofs, tables, all chairs, things. He's just been making stuff in a workshop and his hands are calloused and probably just a a bit bloody, maybe with some splinters. He's a hard working man. But the angel comes to him and says, Joseph, you are the son of David. 
You are an heir to the throne of David. He's waking him up and prompting him regarding the significance of what's happening here. Joseph, don't just look at your life and your carpenter shop and what's going on, but look at the big picture of what God is doing. Joseph, son of David. And then he commands him not to fear. Do not be afraid. He calls him to obedient courage. We see this happen throughout the scripture. Moses is told, I'm going to send you to deliver my people. So go in front of Pharaoh with these three signs. The most important and powerful person in all of Egypt, you go tell him, let my people go. And Moses is like, yeah, um, I will be with you. Go. Be brave. Joshua, Go in and take the land that I'm giving to you. By the way, here's your battle plan. Go to Jericho and walk around the city for seven days, once each time. And on the seventh day, walk around it seven times and then shout and blow trumpets and the walls of the city will blow down. Yeah. All right. Be brave, Joshua. Do what I command you. Joseph. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Don't fear what? Don't fear what you believe is a transgression of the law of God in taking this woman as your wife. Because what is going on is going on because of the will of God, not because she has been immoral. Don't fear to marry a woman who you believe right now has broken God's law. Don't fear what will happen to you or what people may say when this child comes far earlier than your child could have come. People may make fun of him in years to come and say, is this the carpenter's son mocking him? But do what I command you. Don't fear the repercussions of this. Christians are called to do the same thing, to obey, despite what the culture around us or what our fellow Christians might think of us. We're called to obey God's commands no matter what. No exceptions. Obey. Act like Jesus is king, not like your opinion or what's easy is king. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. And so he is directed to receive Mary. The word that's, that's used is go and take her, but it means receive her, bring her back into your home, receive her with joy. Joseph is then informed about the divine work going on in Mary's womb. What is going on here is the work of the Holy Spirit and not nature. And so be aware that something big is happening here, something that you do not understand. And we'll talk more about that uh, next Next week, probably. Uh, He then informs him that the child, verse 21, is to be the savior of the world. And so he says, I want you to name this child Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. And he gives the reason for that name because he will save his people from their sins. Now, you don't see it because you don't speak Greek and your Bible is in English, but there's something about the word his people. That does not mean his ethnic group. It would say he will save his ethnos from their sins. He will save the Jews. But when you speak about a group of people that that includes more than just the people that are your people, you use a different word. You use the Greek word laos, which means the people, and uh, in which means the peoples and not the people. He will save his people. 
He's going to do something of universal, of, of international importance. He's going to come and save his people from their sins. And perhaps at this point during the dream, Joseph realizes what's going on. That his betrothed was a virtuous woman who had been chosen of all the women of the earth. Think about it, ladies. My wife has said this before around Christmas time. Of all the women that ever existed, she is the Proverbs 31-est among them, right? This is, this is the greatest possible woman who has ever lived. God chose her to raise and nurture his son who'd be born as a man and who would need to grow up. The Bible says in the Gospel of Luke that that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. He grew and he learned. And Joseph at this moment thinks this virtuous woman has need of a just, a righteous man's protection. And this child would have need of that man as well. Not pride. I think tremendous humility and probably some degree of shame, the the appropriate shame that comes when we've been rebuked, when our opinion has been wrong. The explanation goes on further to indicate that this is the fulfillment of scripture. The sign about Messiah had been spoken by a prophet. We'll look at this soon, verse 22. The sign that Messiah would be born of a virgin. We'll look at this next week. And then the truth that Messiah would be a mediator between God and man. It would take a man, a perfect man, to go to the cross and to die for sinful men. But he would have to be of infinite worth. And so he has to be God. He has to be able to put one hand on God's shoulder and one hand on man's shoulder and say, be at peace with one another. We need a mediator. The good news of the gospel is this. If you've sinned against God, if you've not lived your life like this righteous man, Joseph, maybe you have sought to live a righteous life and you've just been guilty of the kinds of assumptions and uh, wrong decisions that, that Joseph was about to be guilty of. You know that you've sinned. The good news is that you have an advocate. You have a mediator in Jesus Christ who will stand in between you and God and plead your case if you're willing to identify yourself as a sinner who sinned against God. Jesus takes your place on the cross, takes your sins for you. He's put to death because of them. And God is satisfied with this arrangement because this is what he and his son agreed on before the founding of the world. And so you can know that you are right with God and be saved. We see then Joseph's obedience to the angel's command in verses 24 and 25. Notice the timing of his obedience. It says in verse 24, when he awoke, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Not that he wrote a plan about how he was going to obey the angel. Not that he said, I'll pray about that. Not that he said, the angel made some good points, but there are some commentators on the scripture who say other things. No, he obeyed when he woke. He obeyed immediately. And Christians ought to understand that that this is not a democracy. This is something that we're particularly prone to, I think, as as Americans living in a society where it's built on the idea of there is no king over us. The people are the king. The law is king, not the king is king. We need to understand that as Christians, 
We live under a monarchy, an absolute monarchy. And when our Lord and Savior, the sovereign God of the universe, says to us, do this, we ought to say yes and do it with all speed like Joseph. When he woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. We see the result of his obedience. It says that he went and he took his wife. He received her into his home. He abstained from union with her to, to preserve, I believe, uh, her, her purity and to preserve the, the dignity of the birth of the Lord Jesus, that, that he, would, he would not uh, cast any aspersion on her. And also, um, he named the child Jesus. Now, we might just think, well, that's what God said that he was supposed to do. He, gave, he was obedient because he was like, oh, you want to pick out the name? You know, my wife has asked me four times uh, what I would like to name my children. Every single time I've offered up the same Bible name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> and she said no every single time. You know, I think that most of you think that she's wise and I agree. Um, it was novel and funny at the moment, but my poor children, they would be tormented. Um, is, it, is it just that God gets to choose the name? No, there's a meaning to the name. He will save his people from their sins. But there's something significant happening here. Remember the big story of what's going on in Matthew. Matthew is saying, this is the Messiah. And he said in the first 17 verses, I will offer you genealogical proof that, that he comes in the line of David, that he is the legal heir of David. The Davidic line had been devastated by the exile and then the return to the land. But there were some out there who could prove that they were from David's line. And they, when they went to the temple and they, they said who they were and they said where they had come from and they were enrolled and they paid their, their tax to worship and then, you know, they, when, they, when they did all of those things, people would say, that's Joseph. He's in the line of David. He's one of, one of David's ancestors. When, Dave, when, when Joseph appears in the temple, on the eighth day of Jesus' life with Mary, and they present the child, and the, 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 the priest says, what is the child's name? And Joseph speaks up and says, he will be called Jesus. He's saying, this is my son. I am adopting him. Now, they don't know that. He's saying, this is my son. He's saying, this is the legal heir to David's throne. He's conferring the right to David's throne on him. Matthew saying, see, this is a fulfillment of the scriptures. The virgin was, was with child, and they brought forth this child, and they called his name Jesus. He owns that throne. It's his. Now, in the remaining moments that I have, I want to point out something about Joseph's character and observe why I believe this is the man the Lord chose to raise his son. Look at the character of Joseph and think, this is the man who would say to Jesus, no, 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 use the hammer this way. This is the man who would say, you know, that man defrauded me and he's not paying me what he said he would for building this for him, but, but we're going to let it go, you know, or we're going we're gonna to prosecute him according to the law. You know, we're, he, this is the man who led and guided Jesus as he grew in favor with God and men. Joseph has a zeal for the law of God. He was gentle 
on the other hand, toward Mary in the midst of trial and personal pain. Think about what Jesus learned as he grew up, what he saw in front of him. When Jesus comes in ministry, does he say the law of the Lord is no big deal and it's all about grace? No, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're going to be in serious trouble. He says that not a single word will depart from the law of the Lord because he didn't come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. Jesus loves the law of God. It's his delight as it was his grandfather David's. But Jesus also loved and showed mercy to sinful and struggling people. In Matthew 9.13, he condemns those who condemn others by saying, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's everyone, isn't it? Jesus was about showing mercy, even though... He loved the righteousness of God. Because no one can survive if they're called to, to, to fully live out the law of the Lord. They can't. Their sinfulness blocks them. And so Jesus calls people to be humble and merciful. Think of the character of God the Father. God loves his law. That's why he gave it. And God loves mercy. That's one of the character qualities that God wants to be known by. In one of the pinnacle moments of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, this is a, a summation of all that God is doing through Genesis. And then in Exodus, uh, Moses on the mountain, and he says to the Lord, please show me your glory. And listen to what God says to Moses. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Whatever he says next is going to be super important. This is what God chooses to say at that moment. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is the character of God the Father. God the Father saying, I am gracious and merciful to lawbreakers. I will pay for their sins. And so... This is the character of Joseph. This is the character of Jesus. This is the character of God the Father. And this, I believe, is the message that Matthew is saying to God's people. This ought to be the character of Jesus' bride. She ought to be a virtuous woman. Do we love the law of the Lord? To some degree, right? Perhaps in, in our sinfulness, we have said we're going to make accommodations and figure out interpretations of, of Bible commands and choose not to obey them because some scholars say that this doesn't really say, you know, and I like that because I don't want to do that. And so we exclude ourselves. But what we ought to say is what Paul says in Romans 7 12 the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We ought to say all that God commands his people to do is holy and righteous and good, and we ought to do it to the best of our ability. And we also ought to embrace the fact that to love and to love with the character of Jesus is to show mercy. And that the way in which we love and the way in which we show mercy is a test of the depth of our devotion to God. What does it say? How can someone says that he loves God whom he has not seen if he cannot love his brother whom he has seen? 
I'll tell you, of 12 or so years in pastoral ministry, the thing that has grieved me most often and probably grieved me most deeply is how few people actually deal with their conflicts in a godly way. How when emotion and anger and circumstance get the best of someone, they just kind of chuck everything God says and commands to the side and say, I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do this. Our Savior calls us to live in a different way. Our God calls us to live in a different way. And he gave Jesus an earthly father who lived in this way. This was his pattern. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's pretty wide and expansive. That includes everything that we could say, but you don't know what he or she did to me about. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, test of spirituality here, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Isn't that what Joseph sought to do when he was thinking? I will be gentle towards her. And yes, we're to keep watch on ourselves lest you too be tempted. But Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Matthew 18.15 says, If your brother sins against you, if your brother sins against you, not if he sins against you in this particular way or that particular way, but if he sins against you, in brackets perhaps, at all, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Denunciation culture means that perhaps we are tempted to go and tell them their fault. You know, I will text you, even though I'm not talking to you. I will tell you your fault. But I'm not going to keep it between you and me alone. Right? You know, because I've already talked to seven people and said, you know, my friend has this problem. And then in the middle of the conversation, they're like, is this really you? You know, and you're like, well, yeah. Right? Between you and him alone. If he's listened to you, you've gained your brother. Why? Because rebuke and applying the law of the Lord and, and, and speaking to people about their sins and saying, you wronged me, or I want to restore you in a spirit of gentleness is all about community and unity and togetherness and relationship and fellowship. Thinking about what Joseph did, Matthew Henry quotes Ecclesiastes 9.17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. I believe the way Joseph handles this situation embodies what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love sticks close with a brother. And that's the character that God calls his church to. This is the bride that Jesus deserves. This is the spirit and the character of the Father that God gave to Jesus. And so what a model we have as believers in Joseph, who, from a human standpoint, shaped and molded the character of Jesus. He was given to Jesus by the Father, and what an opportunity for us to be shaped by the church in all situations we ought to seek to be gentle 
and to love and to care and to be kind with a love like Jesus is. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my encouragement to you is if you come to Christ in your sins, with your sins, and you say, I repent, he will be gentle with you. He receives all who come to him seeking that kind of love. And so my encouragement to you is to put your faith and trust in Christ today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider your word and we pray that you would write the truth of your words on our hearts and that we would carry ourselves in this way. Father, show us. Show us the goodness of living this way. Show us the goodness of of following your commands and living based on your principles and not, not deviating from them to the right or to the left, but instead saying, yes, Lord, in the midst of every difficulty and every trial. We pray that you would help us to not just see a Christmas story about Joseph who got it wrong, but to see a deep well of godliness And to say, that's what I want to be like. And to consider the place of honor that you gave this man, Joseph. And the opportunity that you gave him to shape Jesus. And then may we be shaped by his example and by our Savior. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who's not put their faith and trust in you for the forgiveness of sins, I pray that they would cry out to you from a heart full of need, humbly, seeking your forgiveness. We pray your blessing on the remainder of our day. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen.